Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learn with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. I wouldn't expect anyone listening to this podcast to disagree with the idea that we need police. Indeed, I think we probably all agree we want our police to be a positive influence on society. I, for one, look at the idea of defunding the police as the height of insanity. If humans were perfect beings, then we could get by without our friends in blue. We are, however, not perfect, and instead rely on rule of law to create a civil order in which everyone can thrive. However, I think we can also all agree that our police forces are not always perfect. If they were, calls to defund them wouldn't come up in the first place. I'd argue, then, that those of us on the pro-liberty, pro-freedom side, which, generally speaking, is also the side stronger on supporting rule of law, have an outsized role in making sure our police are in the best position to succeed. Today, we're going to talk to three groups, Reason Foundation, Institute for Justice, and Can't Wait Foundation, who are highlighting and challenging the things that create fault lines in the relationship between police and the very people they are meant to serve. You'll hear where incentives are misaligned, how additional transparency can help everyone involved, and cases where the very functions of policing have moved away from their proper roles. Now, someone out there listening right now who is particularly pro-police may be getting their defenses up, thinking that this sounds like we're going to have an attack on the boys in blue. Stick with me. I think you'll find common ground with the speakers today, all of whom believe, as you'll hear, in the important role policing plays in our criminal justice system. Yes, our guests are willing to highlight a few faults. However, those of us who want to ensure our cops are fully focused on keeping the peace and defending us from the bad guys, instead of having their profession tarnished to the point of putting all of us in danger, need to come together to ensure that American policing lives up to its highest ideals. So let's jump in. Well, the Reason Foundation is one organization we could turn to for pretty much any issue we wanted to talk to with their unique blend of a libertarian outlook and a smart way of saying things. And so definitely wanted to talk to them about this issue of how we improve policing. And to do that, I have Adrian Moore, who is the Vice President of Policy at Reason, and so as such is knowledgeable about any uh, topic that I probably could throw at him. But today we're going to talk policing. So Adrian, from your perspective and, and from Reason's perspective, what are the major hindrances to better policing in America today? Or, or maybe if I could put that another way, what are the problems that have allowed police defunding movements to gain as much traction as they have? Yeah, in a lot of ways, there's there's many sort of, you know, particular problems, but they really roll up to a couple of, of, of big thematic areas. So one is that we've developed a policing culture in America that is very warrior oriented and it's militaristic in a sense and uh, takes that sort of framing of it's a battle and it's a conflict and you, you've got to be ready for, you know, ambush and, and things like this. 
which is applicable in a very narrow range of of police officer situations, but not a very healthy way to approach, you know, the vast majority of their interactions with the public. And so their escalation is sort of baked in. And then and then we have problems of of sort of transparency and accountability. We we're not really measuring how effective police are. We're not holding them accountable for poor performance, nor are we doing a good job of of rewarding the officers who do exceptionally well. And and the system is very insulated. So it's very difficult for external parties to determine who the bad actors are. And I think everybody's probably heard many times that it's not that all cops are bad. It's a small number, but identifying and dealing with that small number is highly problematic in our system. So we don't have the right accountability system. Yeah, I want to talk more about that transparency item. I saw a quote in a recent article you did focused on policing in Michigan. It said, quote, the minority of law enforcement officers who commit misconduct create real problems that ripple throughout the criminal justice system. To separate these problem officers from the many good officers, we need transparency, end quote. So talk a little bit more about that transparency in police forces. I mean, what does that what does that mean? What does that look like? And and how do you how do you get there? Yeah, it takes it takes a number of forms. Um, part of how I, I I came to be working on policing issues is that I began my career reason twenty five years ago working on criminal justice issues broadly, of which policing is an important subset. And I think it's important that we think of it that way. That our policing problems are embedded in in sort of a criminal justice system that is also needs some changes and. And neither is going to get us all the way there without the other. The way that the police are sort of embedded in providing the the ground level link of the criminal justice system that flows up to prosecution, that flows up to the courts, means that in a sense, we can never really grapple with the bad apples effectively unless the good cops stop protecting the bad cops. So there's a cultural change that has to happen where rather than seeing themselves as a brotherhood against all uh, at, at war with the criminal element, you know, in the way that they frame it, um, they have to think of themselves as the front end of the criminal justice system that serves society and develop an intolerance for bad actors. So that's the number one thing. And there's some things that can help with that. I mean, I think there's been years and years of conversation now about you know, police body cameras, which are can be a very effective tool, but we have to understand the limitations of that tool too, because there's, you know, a lot of systems and procedures that you need to have to effectively use all of that footage that's created. Um, the fact is the body cam never tells the whole story. And so you can't rely on it entirely, nor, nor should you say, well, because it's imperfect, let's not use it, which is the approach a lot of police departments take, um, or it's too much of a hassle, so let's not use it. It's We have to use the appropriate tools. And I think the final thing is, is the relationship between police and prosecutors is very close. They work together to try to identify, arrest, and prosecute criminals. But that cozy relationship, that working partnership, means that when prosecutors are then asked to prosecute problem officers, they're being asked to prosecute the very people they work with on a day-to-day basis in close partnership, which is not an ideal situation. 
not an easy one to solve either. What do you do? Create special prosecutors? You know, you know <laughs> it's very easy to identify the problems and much more challenging to come up with realistic solutions to a lot of these things. Right. And, and you know, I think it's in one trouble that I think people have with some of the questions around transparency is this challenge that by adding some of this transparency, you're actually putting cops at greater risk, um, if not in the field, just administratively for doing the things they need to do in those, as you kind of say, that that rare uh, slice of the role where it is, you know, pretty adversarial and pretty tough, and they have to make some really hard decisions in the in the line of action. So uh, are there places where some of this transparency, you've seen it actually tried successfully? I mean, is there a, a police force out there or something that's really taken this up and, and turned things around in a positive way? Well, I think there's... A lot of partial successes out there, um, various uh, departments adopting aspects of reforms. Um, you know, the Trenton, New Jersey Police Department is the one that gets singled out by far the most, um, being completely overhauled uh, almost two decades ago um, and rebuilt uh, in a more accountable and less, again, sort of getting away from that warrior mentality seeing themselves as in partnership with other organizations to solve um, the problems that, you know, are not always criminal in nature. And instead of treating everything as if, you know, police deal with criminals. So if they're called, they handle it in a, in a, in a sort of criminal fashion. So I think you have to look at various places to test various elements of these solutions. You know, my wife was uh, another reason why I became very interested in in police reform is my wife is a former LAPD officer. And uh, during the years I was uh, working at Reason, she was uh, working as an LAPD officer early in my career. And uh, and so I learned a lot from from her experience and from being around L.A. police officers. And and, you know, L.A. has experimented with civilian oversight boards and, you know, getting to the uh, the question we talked about earlier of how do you find the balance of holding police officers accountable for following procedure and making appropriate decisions, but not create a disincentive for them to act when they should act. And that's a delicate balance. And so, uh, you know, police officers, especially given the sort of warrior and at war uh, culture that they have, have a lot of difficulty with non-police officers judging their actions, and that creates conflict. On the other hand, it's, it's clearly obvious that only having officers police each other doesn't work because they're in a very close club at war with the criminal element, so that pulls them together even tighter, so they're not good at holding themselves accountable, which is why we have, you know, problems with, um, you know, qualified immunity and and, and, and various things you think about. So, you know, the positive approaches to defund, what's broadly called defunding the police, the crazy version of defunding the police is actually defunding the police, which is only supported by, you know, a very radical uh, element and not by most of the members of Black Lives Matters and, and groups that have been pr protesting the police. The effective and reasonable forms of defund the police, in quotes, is recognizing that not all 911 calls are criminal activity. It's mental health issues. It's uh, you know domestic disturbances. 
There's all sorts of things that police officers get called to that may or may not have crossed a threshold into criminal behavior. And yet it's always the police who respond and they're trained to deal with criminal behavior and not much else. So recognizing that and coming up with a broader based system that sends the appropriate responders to the situation once it's been identified that this is not primarily a criminal matter. And sort of the companion to that is recognizing that criminalizing everything creates more of these violent police interactions. When we ban vaping, you know, which you can have public health reasons for really wanting people not to vape, you know, if you believe that is an important public health issue. But when you ban it, you make it a criminal issue. And now 17-year-olds vaping in the park becomes something that they can get tased for or even shot, you know, in an extreme case. And that doesn't make any sense. So when we criminalize, the more things we criminalize, the more of those violent, potentially violent interactions we create. And so rethinking how we address a lot of victimless crimes, in a sense, where we're trying to protect people from themselves, taking the police out of that equation is a big part of what I would call rational, uh, you know, police reform or, or rational defunding the police, which means really focusing the police on real, you know, crime investigation, crime prevention, uh, and uh, responding to emergency calls where police powers are the appropriate response. That's great. No, that's a really helpful overview. And, and, you know, there's, it's such a fraught issue. It's a complicated issue, but I'm glad you and the team at Reason are continuing to look at different ways to help improve the system, not just, you know, reject the system and, uh, and find different ways to make sure that we are all safe and, and also kind of all working, working together towards that safety. So, uh, Adrian Moore, really appreciate all you've shared with us today. Thanks. Thank you. Institute for Justice is one of the premier First Amendment public interest law firms in the country, well known for turning eminent domain into a popular phrase with its brilliant work in the Kelo case many years ago. Institute for Justice, or IJ, as most people know it, wades into a wide variety of cases where the First Amendment rights of everyday citizens are at threat, and the dividends accrue to all of us when IJ wins. IJ has a terrific team of top attorneys, and among them is Robert McNamara, Uh, who works on a wide variety of cases. Uh, So, Bob, we could obviously feature IJ on episodes about pretty much any topic we wanted to talk about, but there are several places where your work intersects with this idea of the way that policing is done in the U.S. and how we can continue to make that better. So let's get a big view on the front about what are some of the areas uh, in that realm that, that matter. Sure. I mean, a lot of our work does intersect with policing, particularly our work defending property rights. Uh, And I I think it's hard to deny that a lot of people are frustrated with the state of policing in this country. Uh, And on on both sides, I I talk to police officers and I talk to union reps, and the, the police are just as frustrated with the state of affairs as activists on the other side are. And I think it's worth taking a step back and trying to think about why everyone's frustrated. Uh, It's very easy, I think, to to try to vilify people and 
and say, you know, the, the police are bad or, or the citizens are misbehaving. But I think that really a lot of what's going on are structural problems in the way policing is done, both in terms of what the police are asked to do and how the police are asked to do it. And that intersects with our work in two major ways. One of them, in terms of what the police are asked to do, is all too frequently today, the police are not asked to solve crime or prevent crime, they're asked to generate revenue for the city or the county or the state they work for. And this manifests itself in our work with civil asset forfeiture, and this manifests itself in the the explosion of unlawful fines and fees that we're seeing, uh, where in, in one IJ case, the police were tasked with handing out tickets to people who had mismatched curtains. Uh, not because mismatched curtains did anything to harm anyone, but because citations for mismatched curtains were a way for the small city of Pagedale, Missouri, to generate more revenue on the backs of its citizens. And when police are forced to treat the citizenry as walking ATMs, that understandably undermines the trust the citizenry has in the police. And frankly, I I think it undermines the job satisfaction the police have in their own work. Nobody goes into law enforcement because they want to be a pirate, right? People go into law enforcement because they want to protect the public. And it's not serving and protecting if all you're doing is fining and extracting revenue. And the other main area where our work intersects with the controversy over policing is the the debate over qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a doctrine that makes it all but impossible to hold government agents accountable when they violate the Constitution. Uh, And it's a doctrine that protects IRS agents just as much as it protects law enforcement agents who have broken the rules, who have violated the Constitution. And it sets up a system of just an absence of accountability so that the responsible police officers, the good police officers, are forced to work alongside people who, like, when they talk to you candidly, they don't want to work with. They're working with people who are irresponsible, who are making bad decisions, and who aren't being held accountable through the courts because the system of qualified immunity means we don't have a a rigorous way of enforcing the Constitution in this country. We don't have a predictable way of enforcing the Constitution in this country. And I think those are the two major problems that that IJ sees that create the the frustration that we're seeing on both sides in, in the debate over policing in America. There's a lot of good debate about the around the qualified immunity issue. So we're going to come back to that in a minute. But let's go back to one you mentioned first, that civil asset forfeiture. Uh, to do that, tell us about Iwa. Who is he? Oh, Awa. So Awa is uh, an IJ client. He is uh, the tour manager for uh, a Christian rock band made up of... Uh, the Karen people. Ewa is a Karen uh, refugee. He's a U.S. citizen now. Uh, but the Karen are an ethnic group from Southeast Asia, largely in Burma, that have suffered a lot of ethnic and religious persecution. And so you find a lot of Karen communities in the United States. Uh, and Ewa managed a Christian rock band that was touring to different Karen churches all throughout the United States, raising money. They raised money for the churches, and they were separately raising money for an orphanage uh, in Thailand. And during a break in the tour, Awa lives in Texas, and he was driving home through Oklahoma with the money the band had raised in his car. And he was pulled over in Muskogee, Oklahoma, uh, for purportedly a, a broken taillight that no one has ever established was actually broken. Uh, and the encounter was going fine until the police realized that Awa had a lot of cash in the car. 
He had a lot of cash. He had about $53,000 divided up in different envelopes, and the envelopes were labeled. They were labeled from, with the name of the church they came from. One of them was labeled with the name of the Thai orphanage that the donations were earmarked for. And Awa explained, forthrightly and honestly, he actually at one point uh, called the band leader, uh, the lead singer, to talk to the police and explain that everything Awa said was true. Uh, and he said, you know what, we have a website, that the tour schedule is on the website. Uh, but the police, with no evidence that anything Awa said was false, uh, decided that this must be drug money. These envelopes with the names of churches on them must be drug money. Uh, and Awa must be a drug runner. And so they did uh, what, what you do when you're faced with a dangerous drug runner. They took all the money and then they sent Awa on his way. Uh, they actually they gave him back, actually, a personal check that was made out to him for $300, I think, because they had no way of cashing it. Because under Oklahoma law, when a law enforcement agency seizes a bunch of cash, they largely get to keep it for themselves. They get to take it and use the money to pad their own budgets. And you would think if you thought AWA was a dangerous criminal, you'd probably want to arrest him, right? You'd want to keep him off the streets. Uh, the only interest... The, the law enforcement officers there showed was the interest they'd been trained to show, which was in taking the cash so their agency could keep it for themselves. And you can see how, how uh, sincere their, their concern about AWA was by how long the IJ case lasted. They took AWA's money, they announced based on no evidence that he was a drug dealer and a drug runner, until IJ took his case. And AWA's case as an IJ client lasted less than a day. Uh, the, the lead lawyer on that case is my friend Dan Alban, and Dan and I were driving up to a trial in an unrelated matter uh, in Atlantic City that day, the day he filed the case. So he filed the case. We got in the car. In the time it took us to drive from D.C. to Atlantic City, uh, the, the prosecuting attorney in, of Muskogee County was on the phone with Dan saying, where do I have to send the check? What do I have to do to give this guy's money back and make you go away? Because there was no evidence that AWA was doing anything wrong, because AWA was doing exactly what he said he was doing. But because law enforcement has a financial incentive to forfeit money, law enforcement didn't care what the truth was because they didn't need to build a case against AWA. They just needed to be able to take his cash and put the onus on him to to put up a fight to get it back. And I imagine not everyone is in the, quick thinking enough to bring in IJ or, or otherwise kind of fight it. Uh, but it sounds like they're when they do get fought, when these cases do get fought, the police forces are losing. So if that's the case, why are we not seeing a change in this practice? Well, we, we are slowly but surely. IJ is pushing back against the, the tide of these financial incentives uh, and of these laws that put the onus entirely on the, the property owner to prove that they're innocent. Uh, but it's a, it's a difficult fight because what we found a, a lot of the time is that when IJ shows up on the scene, law enforcement is all too willing to just give the money back to make us go away. Uh, but a lot of these forfeitures are for relatively small amounts of money. They're not always seizing $53,000. They're not always seizing from someone who has the savvy to find an IJ lawyer. They're seizing $2,000. They're seizing a few hundred dollars, an amount of money where it doesn't make sense to even look for a lawyer. You're not going to hire a lawyer for $500 to fight about whether you get your $500 back. And even if you do, what you frequently see in these cases is uh, law enforcement immediately offers to settle. If we took $5,000 from you and you show up with a lawyer, we'll give you $2,500, we'll keep $2,500, and we'll call it a day, which is always my favorite thing. Because if, if there were an actual crime, right, like if I robbed a bank 
and I walked away with $10,000, the government's opening offer wouldn't be, how about you keep half the money you stole? <laughs> no, I stole the money. That was a crime. They would treat it like a crime. In these civil forfeiture cases, they're all too willing to split the difference because deep down, they know there wasn't a crime. They know they're, they're just acting as pirates. They're there to finance their own budget. And so what IJ is trying to do is a two-pronged attack of making these cases go up on appeal, uh, making sure these cases don't go away when the government tries to surrender so that we can get a legal ruling on the unconstitutionality of the underlying process while simultaneously fighting in state legislatures trying to get meaningful reform to these abusive laws where stories like AWAS do make a difference. There have been several attempts to do legislative reform in Oklahoma, and the, the line of the other side in Oklahoma is there isn't any forfeiture abuse in Oklahoma. And being able to point to AWA and saying, well, really, do, do, what, what do you call this if you don't call this forfeiture abuse has, has been enormously valuable. Uh, it's, it's a fight that we're still in the midst of. We won a, a signature victory in the U.S. Supreme Court in a case called Tims v. Indiana a couple years ago. Uh, but the, the fight is nowhere near done. Civil forfeiture has become, in many ways, a, a cancer on American policing. And it's something that we've been working for years to, to finally excise, to get police back in the business of preventing and solving murders and robberies and out of the business of raising revenue for, for the politicians who give them their jobs. We don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to touch on this issue of qualified immunity, partially because it's uh, a mildly contentious issue right now, right? You've got groups like IJ and Reason and Cato that have really highlighted some of the abuses that have come from qualified immunity, which maybe you can define kind of really briefly. But you also had, you know, in my home state of uh, Virginia, now Governor Glenn Youngkin ran specifically on preserving qualified immunity. So is this simply a difference in view between a more libertarian and conservative outlook, or, or is there something more to it? So there, there may be a little bit of a difference in view. I certainly have conservative friends who I disagree with on the question of qualified immunity, but I think there's less distance between us than you'd think. So what qualified immunity is, is a rule that says a government official who violates the Constitution cannot be held liable in a court unless a, a court has already decided that exactly the same conduct in exactly the same circumstances violates the Constitution. Uh, that means it's what's called a clearly established right, and only then can you hold someone liable. And the problem is the same thing never happens twice, right? The world is complicated. And so sometimes uh, government agents rifle through your file cabinet without a warrant. But sometimes they take your files out of the trunk of your car without a warrant. Uh, sometimes there are five agents. Sometimes there are two. Sometimes the person being arrested is kneeling. Sometimes he's lying on the ground. Uh, and it's, it's an absurd doctrine because, of course, no one reads these opinions that purport to clearly establish things. Uh, no government official who's out working his job says, wait a minute, there's a new opinion from the 11th Circuit. I better read what the 11th Circuit thinks the Fourth Amendment means about searches. Uh, that, that's not how anyone processes things. And so when you see debates about qualified immunity in the political sphere, what people say and what Governor Yunkin said is, look— I want to make sure we're protecting law enforcement from frivolous lawsuits, but I also want to make sure we're holding law enforcement accountable when people behave badly. And great. So do I. Uh, none of that has anything to do with qualified immunity because qualified immunity only comes into play once you violate the Constitution. If you haven't violated the Constitution, if you have behaved reasonably, which is all the Fourth Amendment requires, you're just not liable. 
What qualified immunity says is we should look at what you did. We should say, yes, that violates the Constitution, and then we should do nothing about it. And framed that way, which is the way the doctrine actually is, you'll find vanishingly few people who are actually willing to stand up for it. I'm all for eliminating frivolous lawsuits. I'm all for making sure government officials can do their jobs. But I'm also all for enforcing the Constitution, uh, and I, I'd like to meet the people who aren't. Well, that's, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear you say there may not be quite as much daylight between the two positions as you say. It just is a matter of helping other people understand all this issue, which are complicated issues. And we are glad that Institute for Justice is out there making sure that the our First Amendment rights are protected in all of this. So Bob McNamara, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me. Our next group is still in its organizational infancy, yet it has some long-range plans for creating major reform. Its president, Gordon Cummings, was my co-worker over at Donors Trust until 2020 when he went down the social entrepreneur route uh, to form Can't Wait Foundation. The Can't Wait Foundation started with a simple premise. Law enforcement is a necessary part of civil society and so is accountable to the communities they serve. So, Gordon, you know, there's a lot of groups broadly working in this space of criminal justice reform, but you honed in pretty early, specifically on the idea of improving policing and starting there. How did that come to be? You know, there there were two things that really led me to this. Um, One is a um, incident that happened when I was uh, in high school. A friend, his parents went out of town. He decided to do what high school kids do, and he threw a party. And, uh, you know, we were all there having fun, you know, drinking underage as, as as we are uh, prone to do. And um, the police pulled up, you know, the party had spilled out onto the front lawn. The police pulled up and and we started to move back inside. And um, as I was walking, this one officer grabbed me, uh, threw me against the wall and pressed his gun to the back of my head. Um, You know, I, you know, like any kid in that situation, I I, uh, started to uh, freak out a bit. Um, you know, asking, you know, what did I do? You know, why was this happening was what I was trying to get to. And the officer um, couldn't really give me a good response other than uh, he felt we were, uh, that I was in the, the wrong neighborhood and uh, told me I needed to go home. Um, I did go home. And uh, as you can imagine, the entire way home, I kept thinking, wondering, what did I do to deserve this? Uh, you know, you have all these questions running through your head. Uh, I learned later that uh, that officer was known for employing intimidation and violence. And um, even at 17, it seemed to me that he was not fit for the job. You know, it it put this thought in the back of my brain. And, and, uh, you know, life went on. I eventually ended up at the Cato Institute. And the thing that drew me to Cato was their stance on criminal justice reform. So it's, it's a thing I've always been interested in, and I've got a lot of friends who work in this space. About five years ago, a bunch of us were sitting around talking, and I was trying to figure out what is the thing, what is the one thing that we could get to to uh, bring some transparency and accountability to this, to this process, and uh, I kept landing on police unions. Um, I kind of put the thought to the, to the back of my head, and Life continued, but uh, after George Floyd was murdered, um, I thought, you know what, we've got to launch this. I looked around, I didn't see anyone 
focused on police unions. And I thought, if not now, then when? And you've talked to me before about this idea of the incentives being wrong. And, you know, those of us in the free market world love us some incentives. So so let's talk incentives. So where are the incentives set up in such a way in the police world where it almost makes it easy for those on that defund the police side, those people who are opponents of the police to find the talking points that they want. When we, when we look at the space, one of the things that we don't see are uh, disincentives to things like excessive force or civil asset forfeiture. Even when police officers are convicted of violent crimes, they are allowed to stay on the force. You know, we can, we can look at uh, DC for a good example of this. There is an officer on the force right now who was convicted of sexual assault while on duty in his squad car. The way the system is set up in DC, and this is actually very common, you know, you, you'll find it in so many police union contracts across the country. Uh, when an officer faces discipline, it's generally done by three, in DC, it's three officers. It's called the trial board three senior MPD officers. This officer chose a bench trial. He got convicted. He had to go before the trial board. The trial board recommended a slap on the wrist. The city decided they wanted to fire this officer. The officer went to arbitration and the arbitrator correctly ruled that uh, the contract stipulates that you cannot impose a level of discipline that is harsher than what the trial board recommended. The city tried for roughly a decade, and in 2020, that officer was reinstated. He's, uh, in 2020, he was collecting, I believe, uh, just, a, just a little north of $80,000 a year plus benefits. You know, there, there's another example we can look at, again, in D.C., that uh, where Internal Affairs investigated 24 officers and they determined that these officers had committed crimes and they wanted to terminate them. The contract blocked all but three from being fired. You know, we talk about wanting to repair the relationship between the police and, and the citizenry. And we can't do that if police are operating under a different judicial system. They're, as long as this exists, we won't have any trust between them. We have to change the incentives in, in, in the space. Otherwise, we will continue to go down this path where both the police and the citizenry are looking at each other with suspicion. So what's your strategy? What's the Can't Wait Foundation strategy for changing those incentives? Well, you know, so one of the things we need to be looking at is uh, I've got this <laughs> strange belief that if you are at the table negotiating uh, over taxpayer money, the taxpayer should be present in the room. Someone should be representing the taxpayer. Oftentimes, what ends up happening with these contracts is, you know, you've got some, you know, a city manager or politician cutting a shady backroom deal with a union official. There's no one in there advocating for the taxpayer. We need to first open up that process to the public. You know, I'm sure you've heard this. You probably heard this from your parents when you were a kid. I know I did. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. We need to get some sunlight into that room. The other thing that needs to be done is we need to take discipline away from police officers. Um, they've shown time and time again, they are not willing to discipline their own. You look at uh, Minneapolis, 
6% of the officers are responsible for 50% of the use of force complaints. You know, this would lead me to believe that that, that 6%, they aren't fit for that job. It, it's one of the only areas where there seems to be a notion, this idea that the, that officers are entitled to have that job. And that just doesn't make sense to me. And so does that mean you're going to go directly to the citizenry around the police officers? Or are you going straight to the forces? I think we'll be doing both. Um, we'll be trying to engage city managers, politicians, the police, and the citizenry. You know, the ideal would be to bring everyone together. You know, one of the things we know is that this is a local issue. There are about 18,000 different uh, individual police forces across the country. And each one is governed, or I should say, shouldn't say each, almost every one of them is governed by its own contract. So this is very much a local issue. I, I oppose, um, and as an organization, we oppose federal, federalizing policing because different communities want different things out of their police force. But we need to be able to bring these, uh, these uh, different constituencies to the table so we can start a real dialogue about what the community is looking for. You know, it's come up a couple times in the conversations in this episode and kind of comes up broadly that some of the tension in the police reform movement is just on the right itself, right? There mm -hmm. there are folks uh, that we're talking to, frankly, on this podcast today, people like you and, and Adrian Moore, folks at IJ, uh, who are calling for certain reforms. And there's also a contingent that's more in the back the blue camp that, that in, seems to be more interested in just making sure the police continue to exist, which is, you know, laudatory in and of itself. Uh, how do you bridge that gap between the two and make sure they're talking in a, in a common way? You know, um, <laughs> one of the, the things that uh, we are looking at, well, actually, I, I, I could lay out this whole thing, but I could probably tell a story that, that uh, illustrates this a little better. I love a story. Um, so there, uh, I don't know if you or the listeners have ever seen a movie called Best of Enemies. Um, in this movie, a civil rights activist played by Taraji P. Henson is stuck on a committee with a Klansman played by Sam Rockwell. The committee, they were tasked with desegregating schools in all the different states in, in the South. And this one occurred in 1971 in North Carolina. So this took place during the Nixon administration. You know, but in 1954, the Supreme Court had ruled in Brown v. Board that segregated schools were unconstitutional. In 69, a lot of Southern states still had separate schools for black kids and white kids. In order to desegregate the schools without sending in the National Guard, the Secretary of Labor, George Shultz, who uh, I think is most famous for actually being the Secretary of State, and uh, he and a handful of others decided to convene committees in each of the states. Members of these committees were community leaders, generally were on opposite sides of the desegregation debate like Rockwell's Klansmen and Henson's civil rights activists. But because they were invited to be part of the solution, because they were asked to be spokespeople for their community, they rose to the challenge. They were able to come to a mutually beneficial, mutually agreeable place, and they got those schools desegregated. In fact, um, those two individuals ended up becoming lifelong friends. Um, if this approach could work at the state level in the Nixon era South, we believe it can work at the local level and the state level in jurisdictions across America today. You know, we, we hear about how we are, are divided 
as, as a country. But I think if we can bring people together to have these conversations, we'll see that uh, we have more in common. And in, in some cases, we're looking for the same thing, uh, safe communities. We want both the police and the, the, the communities they serve, we want everyone to make it home safely at night. And I think we can get to a place where this will happen. Well, I wish you well in it because it is an important task. And so, Gordon Cummings, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Even the most ardent libertarian will generally agree that the peacekeeping, rule-enforcing role of police is a proper function of government. They might then remind you that government is force, and that the police are the leading edge of that force in society. Okay, fair enough. For those of us who want a thriving, peaceful, and free society, we need government to lighten the load and a police force not overburdened with enforcing bad laws or generating revenue, as Bob McNamara so well illustrated. As Gordon said, the incentives matter. Misaligned incentives that reduce transparency or put police in the position of defending the nanny state only feed those who want to dispense with our police force altogether. And what would replace it? Well, that's not entirely clear, but I know that I don't want people who think more government power is the answer to be the ones to invent an alternative. As Adrian nicely pointed out, there are plenty of challenges to getting the balance right. However, better for those of us who want to expand freedom and reduce government's burden to take the lead in navigating our existing police to a stronger position in society. Well, I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can email me at tellmemore at donorstrust.org, and your feedback is always welcome. I really appreciate it. And you know what? Please do subscribe in your podcatcher of choice so you get the next episode as soon as it's released. We will be back with another episode in just a couple weeks. Until then, be well, be a giver, and let's talk more soon.